0: Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. We're going to be closing out the book of Numbers today. <clears throat> um, and uh, it's, been a, it's been an interesting book. You know, I'm, I'm sure for many of you like me, the, the, like Jonathan said last week, the idea of the book of Numbers is not that appealing to like dive into and say, hey, this will be exciting. But there's actually some pretty uh, exciting stories and some great lessons for us to learn as we go through this book. Um, before we get started, <clears throat> who here would agree with me that God's ways are best? Okay. Um, and I'll raise my hand with that. How many of you that agree with me that God's ways are best? Could also say with me that knowing that we don't always choose God's way, right? So, is it is it fair for us to say here this morning that there is a big difference between knowing and doing? Okay, and we're going to look at that with the nation of Israel um, before we dive into the text. <clears throat> there, there's this is an instance that's a pretty intense. Um, time for Israel, pretty intense rebellion of Israel. We've gotten to see throughout their history they just keep falling and falling and falling, much like we do in our own lives. And God's grace continues to lift, lift, and lift. But what I, I want us to understand that there is zero room for us today. There is zero room for condemnation. There might be room for conviction. There might be room for correction. But there is zero room for the uh, for condemnation for those that, of us that are in Christ Jesus. Um, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Despite the consequences we're going to see today, there is nothing that separates God's love from his people. With that being said, let's dive in. Um, The book of Numbers is essentially a story of two generations. The first generation, we see that they rebelled against God, their hearts grumbled against God, and God said, okay, well, you're going to do things your own way. Then you're going to stay in the desert. And they died in the desert. Then it's this, the second generation, this idea of this, this generation, the next generation that God says, actually, Joshua is going to lead you into the promised land. I wanted to give you, but you actually didn't want the promised land. You wanted back in Egypt. And so I'm going to give the second generation. And the second generation is what we're going to be focused on today. And, and really, the book ends with this second generation on the brink of the border to the promised land. And that's where, that's where the book of Numbers actually wraps up. And then Deuteronomy picks up, and, and Deuteronomy is basically Moses' uh, uh, monologue to them, his reminder, his, his last speech or the reminder of all the goodness of God and the laws and, and some of these different things that's going to equip them to be successful in the promised land. That's the book of Deuteronomy pretty much. But Numbers', Numbers this last part... Um, it, it ends with, with the Israelites finally coming to Moab. So the first part of Numbers, chapters 1 through 10, records the prep work. We, hear, we have the census, those sorts of things. What should have been a two-week journey, two weeks, turned into 40 years. Second section, 10 through 14, tells us of the journey from Sinai to Kadesh in the lands of uh, Paran. And this is where we hear about them starting to complain about the food. The 12 spies are sent out. Some come back, say, there's no way we can do that. Joshua and Caleb, they're like, no, we can do this. And they start, they kind of start grumbling, start like, hey, no, we'd rather go back to Egypt. There's no way we can do this. Third part, 15 through 21, covers roughly 37 of those 40 years out in the desert. And this is the journey from Kadesh to Moab, where the story um, um, picks up for the second generation. This is where Korah's rebellion takes place. This is when Moses strikes the rock. Um, This is when the, the bronze serpent is given to Israel. All those stories that we know about, this is that part. And then the part that we are today, the fourth part, 22 through 25, is the account of Israel at the plains of Moab. This is like the final piece. This is the one, this is the final part for them going into the promised land. It's where Balaam tries to curse. You guys remember the story? And he's forced to bless three times. And he's like, man, what's going on? The donkey comes to him and speaks to him, which is weird. And it's kind of really asinine to think that he could assume that the power of God can be thwarted by someone wanting to curse what God has blessed. So here are the people of Israel on the plains of Moab across the Jordan. They're only 10 miles, if you see on the map, 10 miles southeast of Jericho. They're they're so close they can smell the honey. All the promises have been given to them for years, their hope and their frustrations. They're looking at the previous generation saying, man, there's some failures that they had, but we're we're finally here. We're going to do this. This is where they're at right now. They were exhausted, though. They've been out in the desert for a long time. Israel was large in number. They, they were, there's debate on how large. but We can guess well over a million. Well over a million. Some even would assume four to six million. But I'll just say the conservative, a million people, right? That's still a large number. You're going to leave, you know, no trace left behind. They're going to leave a trace. And so the king Balak, the king of Moab, Balak, out of fear, he's seeing the, the Israelites here. He's heard about the stories of their god. And he's seeing them on his plains. He's up on the mountain looking down. He's like, man, these people, they're, if their God is true and what I hear about their God, they're going to devastate our land. And we can't take them by force. We're not bigger than they are. We can't take them by force. So um, he hires a sorcerer or a prophet named Balaam. Balaam comes and he's like, Balaam, I need you to help me out, bud. I need you to curse these guys. Now, if you read through this, there, there's a little bit of temptation to think like, man, Balaam might have been a godly man. No, he was just a sorcerer. He'd take, he'd take anything from any power he can get. And so uh, God intervenes and stops Balaam from cursing and actually blesses, forces Balaam to bless Israel. And this is actually where we see Balaam prophesying about Jesus coming one day as Israel will have a king that will be forever. Pretty neat. But Balaam was all for cursing Israel. So here's, here's Balaam and Balak frustrated, looking, fearful, and wondering, how are we going to take care of this problem of these Israelites? They're going to take over our land. What do we do about this? So since the curse didn't work, they couldn't overtake them by force, uh, they formulated a plan to have Israel basically implode on itself. Here in Numbers 25, we see the result of that plan. If you guys want to turn there, we're going to read the first nine verses. Now, it's important to note that at this point, um, Israel was completely unaware that any of this was going on up in the mountain. They had no clue that they were trying to be cursed. They had no t- clue that Balak was, was really thinking like, man, how do I how do I get rid of these people? They're just thinking like, hey, God's guiding us, and we've had victories before. We've been in war before. Okay, well, if we have to, we'll just come through and take that. But they were completely unaware of how this was going to happen. They were completely unaware that God had already stepped in on their behalf to keep Balaam from cursing them. So they're just hanging out in the plains of Moab, probably wondering why they aren't moving forward at this point. Completely unaware. And so Moab will attempt to conquer Israel by force of culture, and they do a really good job at it. If you read with me, Chapters one, uh, chapter 25, one through nine. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These people, uh, they, they, these invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor and behold one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting when Phinehas the son of Eleazar son of Aaron the priest saw it he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man Of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Father, would you help us to understand why we have this text in front of us today, Lord? Would you give us your heart? Help us to see what we can learn from it, Lord. Amen. This is not a PG story. Um, Last week I was preaching up in um, Willow, and it happened to be their family Sunday, so all the kids, everything. So on the spot I had to PG what is uh, really a a rated X um, uh, uh, event happening with Israel. And what's happening is is the women from Moab and, and Midian are told by the government to entice the men of Israel in very specific ways, very specific ways, ways that would be effective for the men, this isn't a problem for the women, though. It's part of the culture. It's a natural part of the Moabite and Canaanite culture that there is a level of licentious living that has been accepted in their culture for years. So it was not awkward to whore themselves out. It was not anything that would have been abnormal for them, but it was for God's people. At least it should have been for God's people. And so the men fall right into it. And what these men are partaking partaking of is basically a state-sanctioned exploitation and abuse of women. And the men of God who have watched God provide for them, watch the moral failings of their ancestors, seeing the Egyptian way of life, seeing that God wanted to free them from that, are now faced with this temptation of a, hey, we're going into this new land, and they seem to be fine. I mean, they're living... They're living pretty well. Maybe we could partake of it. And so these men just start, start absorbing it. I mean, after all, they've been following God in the desert for long enough, right? Like they've been, they've been without, they've been sacrificing, you know, they've maybe been loyal to their families and, and done all these things. And maybe, maybe there's just a little bit of entitlement on, the, on these men. So they fall right into it. And they think, well, shoot, we'll just go over to Moab, Right? I mean, we'll go in the night, we'll go, you know, we'll leave, we'll leave our camp, we'll go into Moab and just kind of dabble in the culture a little bit. We're just going to have some party. We're just going to party a little bit, that's all. We're just going to do that. And then they go over there, enticed by these women, and, and before they know it, they're now serving the gods of these women, the god of Baal, of Peor. <clears throat> and this becomes a normal thing for them. They jump right into their culture And their unfaithfulness is not just to their wives, their unfaithfulness is to Yahweh now. And so God's anger burns against them. Enticed by these women, these men abandoned their devotion to the Lord. In fact, Proverbs 5 says, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. Verse 14, chapter 5. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. 21. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord as he ponders his path. Turns out that what they thought was over in Moab was actually seen by everyone. It wasn't hidden from God. In fact, now... It's completely exposed. And what was once out there in the dark in, in beyond the light of Israel is now exposed and now coming back. And and now God is saying, I'm angry. You have now left the unfaithfulness, the way I was providing for you, and you've gone out after other gods. So Moses said, "So God tells Moses to execute the leaders because if this keeps on happening, the majority of Israel are going to start worshiping Baal, and then the whole point of the promised land of God's people being given this blessing is going to be ruined. So now what was once out in the distance has now come home. Verse 4 and 5, And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord might turn away from Israel. So God's desire is that His anger is turned away, but there's now there has to be payment made, and He says, "I want people to understand that with my love and my provision comes and re, this requirement for obedience." And some of your leaders, some of your men, are taking advantage of that, thinking it's not going to have any effects, thinking their sin and their adultery to God and their families is going to have no consequences. On their lives, and so Moses said to the judges of Israel, "Each of you, kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor." Now, notice Moses doesn't actually do what God says exactly. God said to kill all the chiefs. Moses just goes to his guys and is like, "All right, well, that was a little harsh, guys. Why don't you just take care of the guys who you know have been involved with with Baal?" And it's at this point that a plague. Breaks out, killing 24,000 Israelites. God wants the leaders responsible, taken out in front of the whole congregation as an example, not of God's hatred for his people, but his seriousness about the blessing for his people who would be obedient to him. Everything's falling apart for Israel right now. The chosen nation of Israel is about to be absorbed into the Moabite culture. And now the Moabites, I imagine Balak and Balaam are like... We got it. This is working. The Moabites are defeating Israel not by force or by curse, but by enticing them into a culture in opposition to God. Relevant for us today, isn't it? Everyone knows what's going on. Everyone knows that a growing number of people are worshiping Baal, and no one's willing to say or do anything about it. So what gets their attention? Well, it's actually not conviction. It's not the sorrow over their sin. It's not, it's not the fact that they're out unfaithful to their families, unfaithful to the God who's provided for them, but it's a plague. A plague is what gets their attention. That They, they begin lamenting over the consequences of their actions, but not lamenting over the action itself, over the sin that they've egregiously committed. Still, though... Everyone knows what's going on. Nothing's being down, done about it. So they come to the tabernacle, and they're, they're lamenting. I mean, people are dying, 24,000 people of Israel, and they're, they're dying. And they come to the tabernacle, which sits in the very me- middle of the camp, and, and they come, and they begin lamenting and, and, and sorrowful over the Lord. No one's doing anything about it yet, but they're sorrowful that this is happening. Then walks in Zimri. Oh, Zimri. And behold, one of the people, verse 6, of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses, in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation, took a spear in his hand, went out after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of the man of Israel and the woman in her belly. So here's a picture. The people of Israel are dying. People who see this and don't like what's happening come to the tabernacle to lament. And they're, they're worshiping. I mean, come, with, with lament comes this, 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 this desire for God, this desire for holiness, this desire for things to be made right. And they're coming to the very center where God says, hey, I'm going to be among my people right here at the tabernacle. And they're here in the presence of God. And this man so bold, the son of a chief, actually, with a woman from a cult of Baal, a princess, comes in. And the text in Hebrew indicates that they walked through the place that the Israelites were meeting in front of Moses, a man so bold to bring his sin, his desire, his own uh, 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 willingness to leave his family, leave his God. And now he said, I don't even care anymore. What's anyone going to do about it? No one's doing anything about it. And I'm going to walk right past Moses. I'm going to walk right past the holiness of God. Ooh. And the text in the Hebrew indicate that, that it was very close to where everyone was lamenting. Now, the chamber they walk into is a specific kind of chamber. See, actually, in the, in the Hebrew, it's the only word used in the entire Bible for this. And it's not a Hebrew tent. It's actually a tent that was already constructed to, to have these occultic ceremonies for Baal. That means that Zimri wasn't the first person to come in and use this place near God's holiness to basically mock God. This is where things have gotten. Do you see how far they've gotten now? It started with a few wandering away, a few justifications. God, I know the promise you have, but I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, am I'm gonna slip a little bit here. I'm gonna justify, and we're masters of justification. I mean, let's be honest. We we are we are we self-master that art very well. And these guys, you know, they figured what was a little what was a little harm in dabbling. And then it ends up with a guy so bold to walk right through the gathering of God's people, lamenting and dying and not caring at all. But are the people stunned at his audacity? I mean, can they not believe what they're actually seeing? Everyone's waiting for someone else to speak up. And then there's Phinehas. He's a grandson of Aaron. In fact, in 1 Chronicles 9, it says that he's the gatekeeper of the tabernacle. I kind of have a sense that there's some Davidic passion here for the holiness of God. So Phineas, a guardian of the temple, uh, the tabernacle, where God's holiness resides, he's like, "I'm done with this." He sees the people dying. He has compassion for the sin, for, for those that are dying as a result of the sin. He sees this and he's like, "I'm done with it." And he follows them in and kills them. Now, before we go getting this idea that we're the Phineases of the story, and we should be pointing out everyone else's a sin and taking care of it, while we shouldn't remain silent, we should also look at our own lives. So I think that there's an element of our own lives that maybe we've allowed culture to, to dictate our devotion a little bit. I mean, let's be honest, Phineas was at the tabernacle, but there was still a foreign tent there. Like maybe even, even he went through some of this idea like, oh, maybe it's not a big deal yet till there's consequences. So I wonder for us, where have we allowed our own desire for independence, our own way of doing things, our own dabbling, our own unfaithfulness, not just to maybe families, but our, our Lord? Where have we ignored that calling of God saying, Josh, there's more than what you're dabbling in. I have a promised land waiting for you. I know you can smell that honey. Just remain faithful. Be strong. See, from the beginning of humanity, we've been given this choice of freedom. In fact, Galatians five, Paul would say, You're running well you were running well, who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And that's what happened with here with Israel. There's one or two guys It's like, Hey bro, come on, bro. Let's go out for a night. Let's go out for the weekend. A little bit, little bit, little bits. And before we know it, our lives are being devastated by sin. And God's blessing cannot be given in the midst of our disobedience. And I wonder how many times our lives, we're frustrated in our lives because we're not seeing God's blessing. We're not seeing things when when we hear this this idea of freedom and when we hear Jesus say, man, you'll do greater things than I've done. And we're like, man, I can barely live. I just wonder if there's something in our lives that God has been trying to get from us and we're just unwilling to give it up. And it's easy to justify it. I'm going to read through a couple instances um, throughout Scripture, and I just want you guys to pay attention to how easy it would be, and an honest evaluation of how easy it would be for us to justify these if we were in the same position. See, the choice we've been given is a choice to surrender our will in faith and obedience, or live in rebellion and disobedience. It's it's a choice to trust in our own wisdom and our own ways, or act in our own independence. We'll start with the eating of the apple in the garden. Not a big deal. I mean, let's be honest. We all suffer because of a bite of an apple? I mean, we're told to to pursue knowledge. We're told to grow in wisdom and knowledge. Like, what's really the big deal about eating a bite of an apple? Cain, choosing not to present God a qualified sacrifice. So maybe he had a bad day. Maybe he just didn't feel like doing it that day. Jonah choosing not to obey God. After all, why should God save those liberal Ninevites? God's wife looking, or (laughs) Lot's wife looking back after God says not to, and she dies. I mean, what's really wrong with that, Lord? Like, she was still walking, she was still leaving. What's the problem with looking back and maybe missing a little bit of that? She's still leaving, but that's not the point. David's wife Micah giving into bitterness at David over him dancing. Weird as it is, she, she, it, it embarrassed her, and, and basically she, she sabotaged her marriage because she was unwilling to look past that. The choosing of Saul as Israel's king, even though God said he would be the one to choose one for them, I mean, let's be honest. Saul's a good-looking guy. He represented what Israel wanted, and it was for the other nations that they're like, "Hey, we want a king." Uh well, you know, we'll just choose one. And he—he he seems right to us. He's a military man. He's tall. He's respectable. David choosing to disobey God and numbering the people cost seventy thousand lives. But God, it's just numbers. Moses choosing to strike the, wrong, the, the, the rock when he was frustrated rather than speaking to it. I mean, anyone here lead teams ever? Yeah, not million either. Like, I can imagine the frustration. And it's like, Lord, ease up maybe a little bit, God. Like, come on. Who, I mean, he just hit it. But it was his choice to act in his own independence as God's chosen leader of his people. He misrepresented God, but it didn't seem like a big deal. Israel refusing to enter the promised land for fear of defeat after the, after the spies report back. Well, let's use some logic here. We go into a land, we realize, hey, maybe we need to regroup, retrain. Let's, let's hold off on this. In fact, you know what? This is gonna be more devastating to us than going back to Egypt. And it cost them 40 years. Achan, you guys remember Achan and Jericho? They were told not to keep any of the loot from the, the victory there, and Achan's like, Man, I've been out in the desert with my family. We're coming into a new land. I don't know how I'm going to provide for them. I'll take a robe and some shekels and I'll hide it. Seems smart, right? Like this stuff is from evil people anyway. Why, why not? As a result, his family dies. They lose a war, and 36 other people lost their lives. Joshua choosing to make a treaty with the Gibeonites when he was told to destroy every tribe in Canaan. Do you know who the Gibeonites ended up being? They were the Philistines. Didn't work out for them well. Seems right. Like, God, you know what? You told me to destroy them, but they're actually pretty nice people. Like, maybe we can do something here. It seems right. Seems like a good solution, but what had God commanded. See, the thing is God laid out good plans for each of these. He doesn't leave his people in in a mystery of whether he's gonna have a good result for them. He's very clear about it. He just says, follow me, trust me. And the, the problem here, the core problem with all this is that people refuse to trust God and his goodness. Perhaps at the core of all these is the most egregious sin of all. And that's the actual belief that we can do anything apart from Christ. Like that we have our own ways of doing things. And when God's, when God's ways contribute to our ways, it's like, ah, oh, praise Jesus. Thank you, Lord. And when we want to do things our own way, we say, oh, God, where are you at? Where'd you go, Lord? Why aren't you here? You know what? Never mind. I guess I can't rely on you. And I'm going to continue to do things my own way. I say this all from experience, by the way. That we can choose what we'll be obedient to without consequences. I think of marriages within God's people. Those who would, who would be unwilling to forgive, those who would, who would be unfaithful continually, those who, who refuse to work on things, refuse to be faithful, all these sorts of things. I think of licentious living among God's people as a result of cultural norms, I think of sexual immorality and and unforgiveness. And these are the phrases we use, like, well, what's really the big deal? I mean, it's too hard not to, God. You don't understand where we're at. It's too hard not to. I don't have to deal with this. Forgive 70 times seven? No, I'm good, God, thanks. I'll do things my own way. And we wonder Why? God's blessings in our lives are so often at a distance from one another. Same grumblings Israel had, isn't it? I know he says, but this is the reality of the situation. See, Israel longed to be free from slavery in Egypt, yet they wanted it done on their own terms. And what God was asking them to do was not comfortable, it wasn't glamorous, it wasn't easy, but it was good. And that's what we really want anyway. Yet they still question his goodness. And my question for us today, and this is something that God asked me last week as I was praying through some some things, circumstances and stuff in my life. He says, Josh, when are you going to stop putting me on trial? When are you going to stop letting your preconceived ideas of the outcomes of the things you want to happen Determine whether I am good or not. Stop putting me on trial and walk in my goodness. I don't want to put God on trial anymore. Either He's good or He's not. And according to Isaiah 61, God wants to take the brokenhearted. He wants to take the imprisoned. He wants to take those that are mourning. He wants to make them into oaks of righteousness. It is God's desire that he takes the brokenness in each of us, in each of our relationships, and in, each of us, in, in each of our souls, in our past, in our history, in our wounds, and all that. He says, man, I'll, I'll take care of that. I'll make you into an oak of righteousness. But you have to trust me. I'm not even asking you to do it on your own. I'm giving you my spirit. I'm giving you Jesus to make a way that I can do that for you, but I need you to trust me. Parents, don't we plead that with our children also? So what draws us into unfaithfulness? Well, I think first is ignorance. We're ignorant of the things that, that God would want for us, but I think that's only a small, I think that's only a small amount. I think second is is choosing to ignore what is right. Again, there's our choice. And third, allowing the culture to determine our devotion. Allowing the culture to determine our devotion. If we're in a culture where it's easy to devote ourselves to the things of the Lord, sure, why not? But as soon as it becomes difficult and it's like, oh, okay, Never mind. Never mind. I mean, I see all my friends out doing this, so I'm gonna go ahead and do that. We, we put ourselves in these situations where we find people around us who are also like, actually, let's create a little culture that says we don't have to be devoted in this way. And the fix is this, that we choose to not be ignorant, meaning we are around other people and believers who are challenging us, who are, who are calling us out on things, who are encouraging us and instilling courage us. Say, keep going, Josh. Don't give in to the culture. Don't give in to the ways that are in opposition to God. Keep going no matter how hard it gets. Keep investing in friendships, investing in your church, investing in the people around you and investing in your marriage, investing in your children. Don't give up to the way of the culture that seems so normal today. Don't and I'll help you. Don't be the hardest thing maybe you've ever had to do, but I'll help you. And you'll be successful in it because I am Yahweh, that I am Jehovah Jireh, that I am El Shaddai, the one that is that is far beyond what we even we need. That is the God who is with us and empowers us to do what's right. And third, we choose to surrender to God over our satisfaction. We choose surrender over satisfaction. There are things like Jesus clearly says in the New Testament that don't come after me all easy like, like no one builds a tower without counting the cost. There is a cost. But the, 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 the benefits far outweigh the cost. So, so consider it though. Consider that you're gonna choose your surrender over satisfaction sometimes because satisfaction is what the Canaanites, the Moabites were living in. and They were just living for their satisfaction. But God was asking his people to live under the life of surrender. That generation rejected his lordship and tried to do it on their own way. And the reality is every generation does have something to learn from the previous generation for sure. But every generation is given the choice of surrender or rebellion. Dependence on God or independence. In fact, in Jeremiah 2, the, the, the prophet Jeremiah, he's about a thousand years after this, place, this, this event has taken place in Numbers. And God comes to him. That's a 1,000 years after this place. So Israel has had plenty that God could have brought up in their life. And we're talking horrendous sins that Israel committed. The cause of how many thousands of deaths because of their disobedience even. But this is what God says to him. Jeremiah 2.13, he says, For my people, Jeremiah, have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So they forsook the living water. Basically, they rejected God and they built their own broken cisterns, meaning they tried to do life independently from God. They tried to get their needs met. They tried to do what they thought was right independently from God. And that's what God says is evil. He doesn't say, well, you've killed how many people because how many thousands of my people? You've rebelled against me, you've grumbled, you've done all these things. But he says, actually, the two evils is that you've rejected me and you've tried to do life on your own. Galatians, Paul says again in chapter five, he says, walk by the spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. That flesh there is the word sarx and that means independence. So let me read it this way. Walk by the Spirit in submission to the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your own independence. And he says later, he says uh, just a few verses down in chapter 19, or uh, verse 19, Paul says, now the works of the flesh, or the works of your independence, are evident. Think about this. It goes all the way back to Israel, all the way forward to us today. Sexual morality, impurity. Sensual, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, even among his church, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. These are the results. These are the fruit of our independence. When we decide to move away from what God has asked us to, the people that he's asked us to be, when we decide, hey, we're going to do things our way, sorry, God this is the result, this is the natural fruit that is born from that. See, God freed Israel from the yoke of slavery. And all he asked them to do is just follow me. Trust me, guys. It's not gonna be easy, but neither was being a slave. And I have something far greater than you can even imagine, but you're gonna have to trust me. You're gonna have to be with me as I lead you to the promised land. He was providing everything they needed. In fact, they would refer to God as Jehovah Jireh, our provider. He's the one that provides for us. And it's the same thing he offers us today as we stand in this life waiting on the brink of a promised land. He's asking us, Josh, you're almost there, man. I have freed you. I freed you from Egypt. You're not a slave to your sin anymore, Josh. So so be strong. And there's gonna be a culture that's gonna come in and say, Josh, God's not as holy as as you think he is. That Josh, your satisfaction is is more important than your surrender. And God's like, Josh, I have something better for you. I have something better for you. Of the worship team, come up. The question is, will we cave to the pressure of our own desires, of our own independence, or to the culture we live in? Second Chronicles chapter seven says, If my people, we're familiar with this, right? If my people who are called by not my name, Humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sin and heal their land. See, he says, if my people not governments, not organizations, not them out there. But he's saying, if my people, you who gather, us who gather, you and I, if we humble ourselves and we, we come to grips with the reality that we can do nothing on our own, that we, we cannot attain happiness, we cannot attain submission, we cannot attain joy, we cannot attain uh, 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 obedience, we cannot attain holiness on our own, but we are a complete surrender to the Lord, which Jesus was very clear again, if, you're, if I'm not everything to you, you can't follow me. And we try to have both. And we see here in the, in the book of Numbers, Israel tried to have both. They were trying to gain the promised land and let influence the influence of their culture, the, the desires of their flesh, the desires of their independence, uh, uh, create this, this, this life for them. And God's like, you won't have both. So we walk by the Spirit. He says, seek and turn. Like, it it requires a humility, a recognition of who we are before a living God. And he says, in that recognition, in that humility, in the place of of sober thinking about yourself, sober reality, he says, you're gonna seek my face. You can't seek his face without humility and you can't turn from your wicked ways without seeking his face and seeing the holiness of God. And this is not for our, our, uh, uh, um, it's not for our displeasure, but it's for our good that He says, just, if my people, like my desire is to just to do this for them. I, I mean, think about our kids, parents. Like, there's so much blessing we want to pour out on our kids, and when they refuse to love one another. We have to withhold blessing because we can't allow them to think that, man, in their walking in obedience, in their their disunity, in their division, in their whatever choices they're making that we cannot let them think and believe that it is okay and they're going to receive our blessing also. But our hearts always want to bless our children, isn't it? And that's God's heart for His people that we would just come and say, okay, Dad, I'm incapable. I've made mistakes. And I I, I seek your face in humility. And And seeking your face, it's the motivation I need to turn from my wicked ways. The pleasure that I think is gonna fulfill pales in comparison to the pleasure we have in closeness with Jesus. So he says, then and only then will I heal your land. So that's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to take a few minutes right where we are. And I just want to allow God to search our hearts. God isn't looking to condemn you this morning. He might be looking to convict you, and that's a good thing. In fact, Hebrews 6 says, don't despise the discipline of the Lord because he disciplines those he loves. It might not be easy to hear what the Lord has to say to you. But the blessing that will come and the obedience to this will be far greater than the difficulty of humbling ourselves before the Lord. So may we in the seats, in the booths, at the doors, on the stage, at home, may we turn from the very independence that we've given way to. And it might not be these massive decisions that have cost lives. It might cost relationships. It might have costed our own running away from the Lord, our own shame to keep us from the Lord. And and I'll tell you one thing, the Lord is not after your begrudging submission. He's after your heart. He just wants you. He just wants to spend time with you. Again, I go back to kids. It's like the kids who just want to go do, 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 especially when they're little. It's like, oh, imagine your kids. You're like, hey, I just want to spend time with you. I just want to, no, dad, dad, I got to do for you. I got to do for you. What what can I do? How, How do I do things right? And Jesus even says, he says, hey, whoa, whoa. If you love me, Josh, don't worry. You'll obey me. The focus is loving me and being with me. And that's his desire for us this morning. And so prayer team, I would ask that, that you guys would do this the same and then, and then begin interceding for those of us here this morning. There's a lot, of, a lot of circumstances that are hard to walk through and the hardest thing is letting go of our independence. Eve wanted to do things independently. In fact, Satan even tempted Jesus to begin doing things in his own independence and Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing. In fact, the Son of Man can not, not even do anything on his own. So I'm gonna rely on the Father this morning. So as we close with these few songs, let us not be content playing with mud pies in the ghetto. We have a fountain of everlasting water. A holiday at sea and God is offering this despite how good the sinful pleasures have been and keep in mind Israel was engaging in these things because it felt good. But it devastated their people. It it devastated the name of God. And God will bring his people or he will send his people into slavery. He will send his nations into his land, into destruction for his holy name because he will not be mocked, but neither will he allow his people to be mocked. So let us be those who submit ourselves to the Lord despite the difficulty, despite the hardship, because I promise you that as we continue to take these little steps, God will begin blessing us in ways that we we can't even fathom, because that's God, that he does more than we ask or imagine. Let us spend a few minutes turning our hearts to the Lord. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play.